City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 1211 1st Avenue North on the 3rd floor. So, Reply All is a radio show uh, that focuses on stories about the internet. It's reported by uh, the two hosts, PJ and Alex, and these are people that are well acquainted uh, with the internet, with computers, with all the things that kind of go on. And a few months ago, they ran a story called Long Distance, and the story began when they were recording another episode of their radio show, and one of them was called by an online scammer. And the online scammer left a message that said, your Apple ID has been compromised, please call this number to fix the problem. So this reporter decided to turn on his microphone, put the phone on speaker, and record what would happen when he called these scammers back. And so he calls them back, knowing full well that they're scammers, and begins to talk to them. Which just seems like, that that's step one, a bad idea, right? You don't call the people that are scamming you. So as he goes on, he sort of tries a couple different tacks to figure out what they're doing. And then finally he says, you know what, I'm going to go I'm go all in. Because what they wanted to do was have remote access to his computer, be able to log into his computer from where they were at, happened to be in India. And so he said, yeah, sure, you can totally take over my computer. Another bad idea. And then he begins to research who these people are. He finds their Facebook profiles. He lets them log into his computer again, except this time he has their picture as his desktop photo. So when they log into his computer in New York, they're looking at a picture of themselves. There's just a lot going on in this story that's just unbelievable because after that, he becomes friends with the manager of the call center because he kept calling the call centers, calling the scammers so much that they said, look, quit calling our number. If you want to talk about something, call my cell phone, which he did. And then offhandedly one day, this manager of a call center scam line says, yeah, if you're ever in India, drop me a line, I'll show you around. So being the intrepid reporter that he is, he gets on a plane and flies to India and decides to sort of figure out all that's going on with these scammers. As you listen to this story, as it sort of unfolds on the radio for you, it is just one continuous draw jaw-dropping, no-way moment after another. Wait, he's giving them access to his computer? That's... You don't do that. Wait, what? He's, he's calling the guy at home? Wait, he's flying to India to meet... It's just absolutely unbelievable. What's interesting as we've been going through the book of Corinth is there's been several cases and several times where we've had to make a, a little bit of a line between the culture of what was going on in Corinth at the time and what's going on in our world. Uh, if you've been here over the past few months as we've worked through this, we've talked about some things that we just don't have to deal with. Issues like head coverings and what that meant in an ancient society and how that applies to us. We don't have that many temples of Aphrodite. Uh, here in St. Petersburg. This is not an issue that we can exactly draw a line from. But what's interesting as we come to the end of the book, as we come to the second to last chapter, is that a problem that the church in Corinth had 
is nearly identical culturally to a problem that we have. It's a thing that we don't have to draw a huge line on. And it was this. The church at Corinth was struggling with the idea of the resurrection of Jesus. The church, not not the people around the church, the people in the church were struggling with the idea of resurrection. Now you may hear that and say, well, silly Corinthians, that's, we, we are Christians, we believe in the resurrection, but, I mean, do you? Stop for a second and think about it. If I told you, hey, there was a guy who lived 2,000 years ago, and he was killed, and they put him in a tomb, and three days later, he came back to life. Your skepticism, if you take the Jesus part out of that, your skepticism would be very high. If you were to go to a doctor and say, I have a friend and and he was in the grave for three days, dead, but then he came back to life, your doctor would begin to go to a manual called the DSM-4, which is how they diagnose crazy people or people with mental illness, and start to look at you. Why? Because, let's be honest, the idea of somebody rising from the dead is foreign to us. And when it comes to Christianity, the same is true. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus because, you know, that's what Christians do. That's a big part of the Christian faith. That's the whole Easter thing. But let's be honest. Outside of Easter, how often do we talk about the resurrection? Not a lot. Why? Because it's foreign to us. Think about how much emphasis our church, we're guilty of this, and other churches are guilty of as well. We love to talk about the death of Jesus. Why? Because that makes sense. We understand what death looks like. We understand even what unjust death looks like. We have categories for how that works. And yet when it comes to the resurrection, that absolutely explodes our categories. And when we hear it, we go, okay, I'm going to have to believe that by faith because I've, I've seen people die unjustly. I've never seen someone come back to life. And so it's difficult for us to accept, and it was for the Corinthians as well. So what I want to do is this next two weeks, it just so happens, as we're preaching through Corinthians, that this week and next week, Easter Sunday, we're going to talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Funny how things like that work out, isn't it? So this week we're going to talk about the first 34 verses. I want to read them to you, and I would ask that you would stand up as I read them out loud. You can follow along on the screen behind me. The Apostle Paul says this. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to see that's Peter's nickname and then to the twelve 
Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet the last enemy to be destroyed is death for God has put all things in subjection under his feet but when it says all things are put in subjection it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him when all things are subjected to him the son himself will also be subjected to him who puts all things in subjection under him that God may be all and in all. Otherwise, why? what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. City Church, this is the word of God, written nearly 2,000 years ago, and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. Now, on the one hand, it seems for us strange that a Christian church would struggle with the idea of resurrection. Because we know that the resurrection is a cornerstone of the Christian faith. It is what sets the Christian faith apart from so many other religions. And so when we read this chapter, we are sort of in a little bit of shock and awe. How can a church that is a church 
not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And what's interesting is, is Paul goes through, and the first thing he does is kind of reminds them of one of the earliest creeds of the church. Uh, at the very beginning of the chapter, he sort of gave that, it's kind of sing-songy, poetic writing about Christ had died for our sins according to the scripture, then he was buried, then he rose on the third day according to the scriptures. It kind of has this, this back-and-forth poetic playfulness. And that's because that was one of the church's earliest statements of what they believed. It's sort of the first draft in many ways of what would become the Apostles' Creed. The idea that Jesus has died, was buried, and he rose again was the foundational idea that the church carried with it, but the people at Corinth were struggling. And so Paul points out at the very beginning just the facts of the matter, that it wasn't just Paul who believed that Jesus rose from the dead but that the apostles had seen Jesus after his resurrection. And not just the apostles, not just Peter and James and John, those guys who we knew, but over 500 other people at one point saw Jesus after his resurrection. And Paul is trying to say, look, on the one hand, this is something that we say, oh, we don't believe in the resurrection of the dead because it doesn't happen. And Paul says, but here's the thing, it did happen. And not only that, but there are a lot of people who are alive who can talk about that. Now, if you're here this morning and you're struggling with the idea of resurrection, maybe you're just sort of checking out Christianity, this is, this is the big bite. This is the big thing that makes Christianity something that you have to accept by faith. Because scientifically, we can't explain resurrection. But one of the things that's really interesting about this passage and about what Paul goes after in this passage is the question of why did the apostles believe that Jesus rose from the dead? See, a lot of times people use religion uh, to secure for themselves power or money. And if the apostles wanted to become famous by making Jesus famous, saying that he rose from the dead was counterintuitive. Why would you make what you believed harder for other people to believe? No, if you wanted to increase your power, if you wanted to increase your financial gain, if you wanted to be a charlatan who who made things up, you would make what you were teaching easier for everyone to accept. Right? Not harder. The, The apostles believed that Jesus rose from the dead, and it made Christianity harder for people to believe in. And yet, what did the apostles do? They kept teaching it. They didn't say, yeah, not a lot of people are believing in Jesus because of this resurrection thing. Let's shoo that away and just focus on the... No, they said, no, look, this is the cornerstone of our religion. Jesus Christ died, was buried, and then came back to life. That's tough. When we hear that, when we sort of turn off our just assuming Christian things side of our brain and hear that, we have to admit that that's difficult. And what happens is we ignore, kind of push to the side, don't think about the resurrection. And when we do that, we lose out on Christianity's power to deal with our guilt and shame. We lose out on the hope that the idea of resurrection gives us. And we lose out on the power for our lives to be changed and different. You see, when we sort of skirt by the resurrection, we miss out on so much of what the Bible has to say about this. 
So the way that Paul sort of begins this argument is not only does he show us, look, there are, there's these people who believe that Jesus rose from the dead and who actually saw him. This is something that we as the apostles believe, even though it makes life harder on us. But then he begins to, to talk to them and say, look, if you don't believe in resurrection, if this isn't something you believe, let's think about the consequences of that belief. And the first thing he goes after, he says, if Christianity, if the resurrection in it isn't true, then your Christianity, your belief is in vain. It is meaningless. You see, if you take the cornerstone of the resurrection of the dead out from Christianity, all you're left with is moral teaching. All you're left with is, y'all should be better. Do nice things. Be a decent human, okay? But in all honesty... If you take that out, what are, what are you doing here, Paul says? Paul says not only if you take the resurrection out, does it mean that everything that you believe, going to church, reading your Bible, praying, all of those things are meaningless. But Paul also says, and also that would make me a liar, because I'm standing here telling you that Jesus rose from the dead. Not a good consequence. And if people don't come back to life, if Jesus didn't, really come back to life, then honestly, the cross is meaningless. You see, we as Christians, as I've said before, we like to talk a lot about the cross. Ah, yes, there's Jesus paying the penalty for my sins. But if Jesus doesn't, didn't rise from the dead, how do we know that his death was satisfying? How do we know that he was actually conquering sin and death? So you take the resurrection out and you don't have that. The resurrection of Jesus is the vindication of everything that he did in his life and everything that he taught in his life. It is the way that we can see that the guilt and shame that we heap on ourselves, that we feel, sometimes justly, sometimes unjustly, is dealt with on the cross. Why? Because we can see him conquering death by coming back from the dead. It's his way of showing that we are vindicated in our belief. You see, that's what makes the death of Jesus different. There have been many good people who have been killed unjustly in the history of mankind. But never a good person who was killed unjustly to pay for our sins and then rise from the dead. And it's interesting that Paul sort of sums this up. He says, look, if you believe in Jesus without the resurrection of the dead, then we are to be so pitied among the world. We are, of all people, the most pitiful. Well, it's pretty harsh on Paul's part, right? Why does he say that? He says that because the life of a Christian is a life of self-sacrifice. It's a life of dying to yourself, of serving others, of giving up your rights, of giving up what you deserve, of giving up what you think is right to love and serve others self-sacrificially. If the resurrection isn't true 
Why are you doing that? What is the point? If this isn't about something more, what is the point? It's interesting because this flies in the face of sort of our cultural moment. Right now our culture has uh, this struggle, right? Uh, on the one hand, we believe that, that we have come from a system that creates the survival of the fittest. That this is sort of the way that the world runs, the way that the world progresses, is in a survival of the fittest fashion. But on the other hand, our culture says, yes, but you need to be kind to others, you need to look out for others, you can't just be about yourself. And the hard part is that those two things are at odds with each other. If I'm supposed to, if I'm supposed to be a decent person to everyone else, that's not me being survival of the fittest. You see, if, if really it is survival of the fittest, I should use any means necessary to set up my kids for their best life. Even if that means other kids don't have their best life, that's okay. i got to take care of my kids. If you said this, you would be a pariah. If you said, look, I'm going to do whatever it takes for my kids to succeed, and if that means that y'all kids don't succeed, I don't care. No, this is, this is culturally not okay, right? Why? Why is that culturally not okay? Well, we should take care of other people. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is what makes that make sense. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is what stops us from living in a survival of the fittest world. Because the resurrection of Jesus says that this life matters. That your community matters. That the earth matters. That people around you matter. And that self-sacrificial love is the only way to see the world change. And if the resurrection of Jesus isn't true, then you're being really pitiful because you're missing out on the way that you should be taking life by the horns and doing whatever you want. But the resurrection of Jesus is true. And it not only affects us, it not only affects the way that we sacrificially love others, but it affects the world around us. Paul continues on in the chapter and he starts talking about first fruits, which is something that, let's be honest, we do not live in an agrarian society. I mean, there's like, there's some orange fields down in Manatee County, but like, other than that, like, farming is not something we here in urban St. Petersburg do. Maybe you grow some herbs. Right? Maybe you got some basil, some rosemary on the porch. You got a little bit of that going. But let's be honest, you don't genuinely farm. None of us do. And so the idea of first fruits is something that I have. What are you even talking about, Paul? And so when Paul's talking about these ideas, Paul talks about first fruits. It's the idea of that first lemon on the tree, that first orange. And you can look at that and go, oh, I know how it's going to go. Most of you know that I have uh, an enormous avocado tree in our yard. And something about avocado trees, they're not annual plants. Uh, They don't put out avocados every year. And so about this time of year, we can go out and look at our avocado tree and know, okay, is it going to be raining obnoxiously oversized Florida avocados for a few months? (laughs) 
is it all good and we don't have to like worry about putting something over our dog so he doesn't get killed by an avocado that's bigger than he is. <laughs> and I can look up at this time of the year and go, oh, there's avocado, there's little avocados on the tree. More avocados are coming later. That's first fruits. It's those first buds that go, ah, because I see this, I know that more of this is coming. Jesus' death is the first fruits. It is the that first bud of the avocado plant on the tree that tells us that more like this is coming. That death doesn't have the last word. That it's not just Jesus who will rise from the dead, but Paul says we will rise from the dead as well. That it's not just Jesus, it's all of us. That we're all in this together. And he he points back to Adam and says, look, just like all of us inherited death and inherited our propensity to sin from Adam, in Jesus Christ, we can all have life that is new and that is changed. A life that is the kingdom of heaven brought to earth. You see, what's interesting is when he makes that comparison, he's showing us something. He's showing us that on the one hand, the death that Adam's sin brought into this world was not just something that happens in your heart and mine, is it? It's something that happened to the very earth itself, to the planet, that all of a sudden what was a peaceful ecosystem has become a chaotic ecosystem. What was systems that reflected a good and orderly God have become systems that are fallen and broken. See, it's not hard for us to see this when we look around the world. Any time that we see tragedy, we look around and have this innate sense in all of us that says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. As Floridians, the, the, the shooting at Stoneman Douglas is something that hits close to home for us. It's something we think about. And we look at that. And we have this sense. We, we know that, that, that something is not right. That, that something is very broken with this. And the resurrection of Jesus reminds us that yes, that is broken. But that is not the last word. That that is not the end of the story. That there are first fruits. That change is coming. And not only is that change coming to our hearts and and minds, but that change is coming to the very world around us. Isaiah was talking about this, was talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And one of the things he says is, in those days when the resurrection of Jesus begins to cover the earth, like the water covers the seas, that they will take their swords and beat them into plowshares. They will take their assault rifles and beat them into gardening tools. See, this isn't a discussion of the Second Amendment. This is a discussion about the peace that the resurrection of Jesus is going to bring to this world. Jesus isn't just concerned with us as humans, but is also concerned with the systems around us, with the planet itself. And Jesus' resurrection is beginning the beginning of that change. It's the first fruits. It's that that flower, that orange blossom on the orange tree that says, yes, it's coming. 
in Florida, we don't really get to experience seasons. Um, we basically have um, hot, <laughs> random weeks of mild pollen, <laughs> and that's about our seasons. We don't we don't get to experience that sort of real season like you would in a more temperate climate, like you would in say the Midwest. But there's something in the Midwest about when snow and and snow is gross, right? It's like it's like really nice for like 45 seconds and then it's awful and gray and terrible for months and months on end, right? But there's something promising when that snow begins to melt off and that first shoot of green pops up, whether it's on a sidewalk crack, whether it's in your yard, whether it's the trees that just begin to put out their leaves. When you see that, you know that something is changing, that something is beginning to change. It's interesting, C.S. Lewis, the famous Christian writer, when he began to write about this change that the resurrection of Jesus began to make, he made the analogy between spring that comes after a long winter. That hope that everything is going to change. No longer will your sidewalks need salted. No, something more and greater is going on. Something better than spring to the cold Midwest is coming because of the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul finishes this by getting kind of nitty gritty with our hearts. He says, look, if the resurrection of Jesus isn't true, then here's how you should live your life. Eat, drink, because tomorrow you die. Right? This is quoted by famous college rock band Dave Matthews. Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Think about it. If the resurrection of Jesus isn't true, Paul says, go do that. Go do that. Go get all that you can out of life. Do what you want to do for you. Don't worry about the rest of the people. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you die. Paul says, without the resurrection of Jesus, as humans, not just as Christians, that's what we've got. Maybe our be merry includes be nice to other people. But at the end of the day, if we don't believe that there is any resurrection... Why in the world would we do something so self-sacrificial? Why would we follow the teachings of Jesus when they tell us that we should be the sort of people who give up our life? Paul even begins to list the ways that he has done that. He said, look, when I tried to plant a church in Ephesus, they literally threw me in a cage with a bunch of lions and gave me a stick. Church planting is hard, but I think I've got it slightly better than the Apostle Paul. Rarely has anyone in St. Pete ever thrown me with a stick into a cage at Lowry Park Zoo. <laughs> I am not worried about that, right? But Paul was, and do you know what Paul did? Did it anyway. What would motivate that sort of self-sacrifice? What would motivate that level of loving people that you haven't met? What would make you want to give up your pleasure so that others 
who don't even deserve that love might feel it. Paul says, the reason I do this is because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. You see, the death of Jesus wasn't just a good example for us. The death of Jesus was Him really paying for the guilt and shame that we have accrued from our choices. And we see that vindicated because the child of sin is death. What sin always brings in our hearts and our lives and in this world is death. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he said, not only did I conquer death, but I conquered the thing that began death. I conquered sin as well. And so Paul says the resurrection of Jesus points us back to that and reminds us that that there is real power. There is power that you and I have. That we are not to be most pitied because we have real freedom from guilt and shame because Jesus has taken it from us. That we don't have to live in a world that is lost in hopelessness. You see, if the resurrection isn't true, we have... Oh, hold on, I read this quote this week and i got to get it right. If the resurrection isn't true, we have a hopeless end. But if the resurrection of Jesus is true, then we have endless hope. Jesus reminds us that yes, this world is broken and there is tragedy and terrible, but it's not always going to be this way. And if you want to see what the world is going to look like, if you want to see that change a-coming, look to the resurrection of Jesus that has already happened. That this resurrection story, this story of Jesus, pain, loving us self-sacrificially when we didn't deserve it and when we can't pay it back, taking that on himself and then being vindicated by rising from the dead begins to free you and I to show that same kind of love. You see, because we have experienced sacrificial, undeserved love, when we experience that sort of love... It marks us. It changes us. So that we begin to act and show that sort of sacrificial, unmerited love towards others. And when we begin to do that, we begin to see more and more orange blossoms on the tree. More and more avocado branches become heavy. And more and more the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of Christ. And that's what Jesus is calling us to, church. To reflect on what He has done and begin to share that sort of love with our neighbors, with our friends, with our families, with our co-workers. May the power that raised Jesus from the dead do that in you and I. Let's pray.